This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pets. I am your host, Brandy Stark, and for this and a few more episodes, we are going to start a, a small series called The Werewolves of Winter. And at the end of each episode, I've also been doing some interviews with folks about their paranormal pet experiences, so we will have a few new stories to add in for folks to listen to. Of course, the Stark clan pug grumble is with me tonight, and they are snoring in the background, but I apologize for that. But we'll get caught up a little bit, and then we'll start off with a little bit about a book and its theories on the evolution of werewolves and tying back to ancient mythology and even prehistory. So we'll get started with that right after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There's no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Radio.com, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information, on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Hello and welcome back to Paranormal Pets. I just wanted to take a couple minutes to catch up with folks. It's been a little bit of a span of time here since I've put out another episode and I apologize for that. Things have been just so strange in 2020. Uh, It's kind of the year that was and the year that wasn't. It's uh, kind of the time in between time and therefore apparently fairly uh, liminal. But uh, just a couple little updates for you. This household, my household, has adapted a a few new faces. The day after Thanksgiving, we went, uh, my mother and I went to the SPCA of uh, Tampa Bay and uh, I had been following their website. My elder rat boys, who were over three, three, three and a half, both passed away within about six weeks of each other. And my elder rat girls are still hanging in, but they're showing lumps and bumps because they're pretty old themselves. They're over three as well. So I thought it was time for a little bit of uh, fresh blood. I do try to support Florida Rat Rescue, but it's been a little helter-skelter there. So the SPCA had uh, some rats up for adoption. I was very pleased that when I got there, the place was packed. It was a two-hour wait to adopt these two rats. And initially, I had gone in to adopt all five because they had three girls and two boys. I'm assuming they were an oops litter, but apparently uh, they had been given up for adoption by different families. By the time it was my turn, all three girls had been adopted, but they still had the two brothers. And I have a brand new 
quite clean and fresh out of the pet store, three-tiered rat cage, so I was quite happy to adopt them. I still have one table rat. Uh, He is about seven months old. He was a bit of a rescue himself. Uh, He was uh, not sold from a pet store, was getting to be a bit old, so I did step in and I did have to purchase him, but he's my boy. His name is Octavius, and of course, he is very mischievous. So it's kind of a a nice household, but uh, I'm sad to say a couple couple of my other pocket pets, my hamsters have passed on. I have one gerbil left. I still have my one bearded dragon pumpkin, but interestingly enough, the SPCA had a second bearded dragon. They had a bearded dragon named Falcon who was up for adoption. Uh, He was a half-grown bearded dragon male. And when I looked in on him, he looked so stressed because he was in kind of a smaller cage. I mean, it was adequate, but smaller. And next to him was a big old boy that they were tending to. He had a tail injury. And so, you know, he was not a well-bearded dragon, but he was in a separate cage. But poor Falcon, as a, as a teenager with all those hormones going through him, he was black bearding and head bobbing. And I felt badly for him. So bless her heart. My mother said, well, I will get you the enclosure that you need if you adopt him. So I now have Falcon, who is actually with me tonight, sleeping on my shoulder and neck as I do this episode. The nice thing is that all my pets, apparently, except for the rats, everybody goes to bed at like seven or eight. So it's it's just me and the rats that are up right now. And then I've got the snoring pugs and a snoozing, somewhat chilly bearded dragon on my neck. But this is Florida. I can use the uh, the coolness, right? On top of that, for the paranormal stuff, the Spirits of St. Petersburg is alive and well. Over the past two years or so, I've actually had kind of a a group of ladies, which has been interesting, kind of come together. I really allowed this to form organically. You know, for a while we were doing interviews and all of this sort of thing when I I had a, a slightly different team, but things happen. And I ended up doing what was known as a volunteer release and I had to kind of start over again. And so it's been really interesting to see how these folks really came together. I'm very, very pleased. It's a really good group of ladies and, uh, you know, they're very enthusiastic. We, uh, we've had two same day calls. So one was for assistance with an interview on a news program in Fort Myers. And by golly, I mean, I think I had three hours notification and these ladies were ready to help out. And the second one was actually just last week. And we got called because there was a house that was being demolished. This older woman had passed away, had no heirs. And I guess a couple of the folks in the neighborhood we're just drawn to the house. Uh, they had kind of heard some rumors about her, but never knew her and got permission from the contractor who bought the house to go in and actually started having some phenomenon. So we were actually called out literally the day before the house was to be demolished to do an investigation. And that was really very cool. No paranormal pets on that. So there's no episode that will be coming out, unfortunately, but I can't risk them. You know, obviously I can't risk the pugs in a, in a house that's going to be demolished. It was structurally sound although the lady had been a hoarder and, you know, they had had folks come out to liquidate. And unfortunately, the house uh, was from 1930 and was not cared for. Uh, It was very neglected, particularly since she apparently also had dementia for the last few years of her life and ended up in a nursing home after she fell and some neighbors found her. And so ultimately, this house had been abandoned. But you could really see just how beautiful that house was. And 
It was a very, very unique opportunity. It was the most ghost hunter thing that I think I have done in a number of years. So we've done that. Uh, I did a Paranormal Investigation 101 class for the Eckerd Lifelong Learning Program called OLLI, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. I wonder about maybe trying for a paranormal animals class as well. That'd be kind of interesting. I haven't uh, proposed that yet. And uh, in my personal life, I have once again gone back to teaching in the local colleges. I am not uh, full-time faculty this time. I I left the classroom in 2019, and I honestly thought that was it for me in education. Uh, It just turned out I needed a rest, and I needed a change of scenery. And I really am right now enjoying being part-time. I teach online for two colleges, and I am doing face-to-face for one, and um, it's fun. I've been really, really enjoying myself again. So I think that was a good career move in some ways. It's it's sometimes considered a step back. However, I'm a third-generation educator, and I, I honestly thought I was done. I didn't think I'd ever go back to the classroom. And seeing that I still had this urge, and I was actually contacted by two colleges because of my background, it's just been a very positive move for me. And I have more control over my schedule. I still have my elderly mother next door and I watch over her and her pets. And uh, I still have my art studio. And of course, the Spirits of St. Petersburg, where not only are we doing ghost investigations, but we are doing haunted tours. So what a mix. So there you go. That's pretty much everything. I guess the last little tidbit is a nice little tie-in to what this episode will be about. We are, the Spirits of St. Petersburg, hosted a little free library. We called it the Little Free Library of Supernatural Stuff. And it was initially inside of my studio. Well, when the shutdown happened, nobody could access the library. And it It just seemed really stupid to me to have an indoor, a little free library. Uh, There is a local group called Shush, which if you do not know, a Shush is a group of librarians. So I always thought that was kind of fun. And they had some retired newspaper stands that they were converting into little free libraries. And I was able to apply and get one. And so our little free library of supernatural stuff has moved outside of the building. If you are in St. Petersburg and would like to check it out, it's hard to miss. It has lots of glow-in-the-dark stars and some of the artists painted on it for me and I have blinged it up. So it is a really, really weird looking little thing, but it is located at 10 Fifth Street North. So if you're in St. Pete, it would go down Central Avenue, Fifth Street, um, is uh, you want to head towards First Avenue North on Fifth Street, it'll be on your left-hand side. But the nice thing about managing that library is that, holy cow, are the books really flying out now? And I have put out several calls for new books. And one gentleman, Christopher Balzano, that we've had on our show before, actually did send me a box of books. And and two of them included werewolves. Werewolves are kind of a sub, 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 maybe interest of mine. I have done some academic lectures on the role of werewolves, and I actually still talk about them when I am now teaching. I kept that presentation, and so I do use it in the humanities. So it is kind of an interesting opportunity. One of the books that I got is called Werewolves by Dr. Bob Curran author of Vampires, and I would kind of like to get that book. This is a field guide to shapeshifters, lycanthropes, wow, and man beasts. So you can see that I haven't done one of these episodes in a while. So this kind of gave me some inspiration to poke around, to read the book, and to get some ideas going for some new paranormal pet episodes, and hence the werewolves of winter. So 
The first thing that we'll talk about, which is really kind of inspired from this book, is the the idea that uh, he proposes that the shape-shifting mentality, the, the idea of man becoming beast, is actually very, very old and definitely predates modern writing. It predates history. His proposal is, and of course this as a humanities professor is not at all outside of the range of possibility, and it is something that is discussed, but they actually discuss, or he talks about, one of the caves that is in France. You actually have to kind of shimmy through some very, very narrow passages to get to this one section of prehistoric cave art. Now, what is pretty interesting about cave art is that there are there's some speculations as to why it was done. So as a humanities professor, we usually do talk about caves as perhaps symbolic of what is known as the liminal state, which I've talked about through these episodes as well. Liminality basically means the space in between levels, if you will. So we have unconditioned reality, which is the supernatural world. We have conditioned reality, which is the natural world. And in between is the liminal state. This gets to be kind of an interesting thing because Caves being both of the earth, having an exit onto the earth, and being within the earth become, in a way, a liminal place. So again, throughout mythology, do note that you will find the dead and entrances to the underworld literally connected not only with caves, but also with lake bottoms or with uh, the bottom of watery resources. So kind of um, that liminal place is within the heart of the earth. Well, what else gets to be kind of interesting is is that there are some theories that in order to get these cave paintings done, that they were a rite of initiation. And in fact, some people do believe there was sympathetic magic that would have been involved with this because a lot of the art, of course, is of animals. And they have also found spears and spear chips, like little chips that have been knocked out of the paintings in these caves, which indicates that at some point people were throwing spears at the images. So sympathetic magic, and this is by Fraser, this is his theory, but it is if I do this, then that will happen. So this would be kind of a form of productive magic. If I do this to this image, if I throw my spear and I strike the image, then when I am in the real world and I am hunting and I throw my spear it will strike the animal, right? So kind of an interesting phenomenon, but he actually talks about the shaman, particularly the sorcerer image that does come to us from these French caves. It is a remarkable paleolithic drawing found on the wall of a cave system deep beneath the Pyrenees in Let's see. The so-called sorcerer, the figure is taken to represent an early shaman, is depicted as a curious creature, a hybrid combining elements of both the human and animal. The drawing appears to catch him in some sort of dancing posture, moving sideways and upward on two human feet. But slouching forward as if ready to drop onto all fours like an animal, balancing himself on bear-like forepaws. Large antlers adorn his forehead, above a bearded human-like face from which intelligent eyes stare owlishly out. But his hindquarters have a bushy wolf-like tail that can clearly be seen swinging back and forth to reveal a lion-like phallus, which actually kind of creates an interesting image, but we'll move on. 
The cavern in which the painting has been created can only be approached by moving horizontally along a connecting tunnel of about 30 to 40 yards, and cultural historians such as Joseph Campbell have suggested that the awkward, nearly inaccessible inaccessibility of the site served to give it an air of mystery and mysticism. It is a strange and enigmatic figure, and it is not hard to imagine the drawing at the very heart of some distant Paleolithic worship. The drawing has been dated to about 1300 BCE, which led cultural anthropologists such as Margaret Murray to claim that this was a depiction of one of the first gods on Earth. They do see this as theory anthropic, an idealized figure combining both human and animal characteristics. Later speculation suggested that both were wrong and has suggested that the drawing was that of a shaman, which existed at the end of the Great European Ice Age around 10,000 BCE. So it does to get, get to be pretty interesting, although nothing is written about the sorcerer or even about the hunting practices he may have embodied because he existed in a time long before writing. It is suggested that the wolf may have been formed as a significant part of his figure. Wolves may have attracted much of early man's attention for, although probably implacable enemies, the two also shared certain characteristics. Similar to ancient man, wolves were social animals. They hunted in packs, they obeyed strict laws of leadership, and they cared for their young. Indeed, these were also human characteristics and is therefore not surprising that they formed the foundation of perceptual bond between humans and the wolves. The perception of such a bond formed the basis of a few very ancient legends. It is said, for example, that wolves might have raised abandoned human children as their own. And this is a theme, of course, that we find in other religions, such as the story of Romulus and Remus and the she-wolf. So kind of uh, an interesting start to our discussion. So where figures uh, was the shaman who was a an individual who himself is considered liminal. A shaman would have been a a form of mystic who had the ability to communicate and or control spirits through what is known as the ecstatic or the ecstasis state. So ecstatic or ecstasis means out of the self. So either the shaman projected himself into the supernatural world and dealt with the supernatural on a one-on-one basis, or as we see with the modern tribal religion of Udon, the shaman allowed the entity, the spirit, the supernatural world to take over his body to interact with our realm, which is pretty interesting. In both cases, however, you'd have to have an enormous amount of power, of spiritual energy, literally called juju, to pull yourself either back into your body or to push the supernatural out. So you have to be able to exist outside of the body. Interestingly enough, when you start doing a comparison of shamanic stories, some things that we do find as a fairly familiar theme are that shaman usually undergoes some sort of life and death ritual. So oftentimes they are alive, but the actual initiation into the shamanic realm is a form of death ritual in which there's one from Australia that says sacred stones replace the body's organs in a shaman, that he is dead and that his organs are removed and replaced with mystical items, and then he is brought back to life. So kind of cool. As such, would prehistoric man 
have recognized the spiritual element of nature, connected it with the shaman, and therefore produced this rather cool image. So I'll let you all chew on that for just a second as we prepare for this commercial break. We'll be right back. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. For those fortunate to have experienced the deep bond and unconditional love of a companion animal, the death that follows can be one of the most difficult and misunderstood losses to go through. Many times, this devastating loss goes unrecognized and trivialized by family and friends, leaving grieving pet parents struggling to find healthy ways to cope with the loss. In And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal for healing the loss of a pet, Dr. Julianne Corbin calls attention to the difficulties unique to the loss of a beloved pet and provides an interactive and compassionate guide to help you process your loss and work towards coming to a place of peace and healing. For those interested in journal therapy and looking for a professionally written and compassionate resource to help understand and reconcile the grief associated with the loss of your pet, this book is for you. And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal by Julianne Corbin is now available for purchase on Amazon and other major book retailers. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pets. So we will go ahead and try to finish up some of these really fun ideas. Just a couple of touches on some of the other mythologies out there. Remember that I mentioned Romulus and Remus? Well, so does this chapter. So the connection of the wolf as a heroic character, uh, we're going from the prehistoric time periods to, to the ancient Romans, to kind of their prehistoric mythic founding that was written under Augustus Caesar, right? Augustus kind of gets kind of like 1950s America. Actually, it turns out America is very much like the Roman Republic and the Empire period, kind of that weird shift. But he kind of got patriotic writing out there. So if you think back to McCarthy in the 1950s, where we really see the rise of these folkloric figures. Uh, I was watching television the other day with my mother, and we were watching Daniel Boone, right? This uh, hardcore American wilderness survivalist who, you know, in this particular episode was fighting the British. I mean, it was kind of an interesting thing. But Augustus Caesar did it first. I mean, he kind of really tried to produce and preserve this mythic, uh, remarkable, supernatural foundation of Rome. And one way that he did that was through the story of Romulus and Remus. So Romulus and Remus are, of course, the sons of Mars and a Vestal Virgin. And unfortunately, the Vestal Virgin was supposed to be a virgin. She was basically raped by Mars to conceive of these twins, but they are born of of war, right? They're kind of born of violence. Because she gave birth to these children, she 
basically was killed. You could not be a Vestal Virgin and hold that title, which was a very incredibly powerful role in ancient Roman society for women. A Vestal Virgin tended the hearth fire that ran the city. So the ancient Romans would actually go in and they would, once a year, they would extinguish their house fires and they would go to the fire in the center of the city that was the Vestal Temple, the Temple of Vesta, and they would relight, they would get sticks and they would bring that fire home to their family hearth. I mean, so this is a very powerful symbol. So you cannot have a Vestal Virgin getting pregnant. She is supposed to be dedicated as Vesta was dedicated to virginity and to the tending of the hearth. Well, when she ends up pregnant, she is walled up and killed and her children are thrown into the river where they wash up on shore. Now, in the ancient world, historically speaking, it was not uncommon for extra babies to be abandoned. For example, if you couldn't take care of them, you kind of set them out in nature. If somebody found them, then great. If not, then nature claimed them, if you will. Well, it was also not uncommon uh, in the ancient world if you happened to be a prostitute or a mother who still had breast milk to go out and get these foundlings, if you could, and to raise them. The theory is that there was a prostitute who found them and took them in and raised them and then eventually had them adopted into one of the local ruling clans. Well, one of the names for prostitute is Fenris or the wolf. If you are Augustus Caesar, do you really want to have your founding fathers, you know, rescued by a prostitute or do you take that word and transform it literally into the wolf? And therefore, uh, not only are they the sons of Mars, but the she-wolf who suckled them, who gave them milk, they take in to themselves that wolfish power as infants, and they grow up as powerful young men. I mean, what a great story, right? Are they werewolves? Not necessarily, but we definitely see that connection between the wolf and culture. Again, even as this book has done, even as I have done in my lectures, it ties them back nicely to the idea of the parallels between wolf packs and human civilization. Pretty cool stuff. All right, so in order to finish up this episode, I am going to play for you one of the new paranormal stories that I have gotten. This is on the Spirits of St. Petersburg YouTube channel if you're ever interested, but you'll actually know it's mine because uh, the person did not want to be on film. They are not on film, but I do have permission to share this. But I basically recorded the concrete and you will see my feet and shoes. (laughs) So it is kind of fun. So here we go. Okay, so I have a new paranormal pet story for you. Go ahead and tell us your story. So I was living in Orlando in a, in a place called Sanford, which is south of Orlando, and moved into this new apartment complex. And everything was kind of fine in the get-go, and nothing, was, you know, out of the ordinary. It's typical, you know, move-in. And after a while, uh, we started seeing some weird. Uh, I was seeing something in the corner of my eye. Like I'd be sitting on the couch watching television, and my bedroom was to the left of the couch ahead of me, and I would see in my peripheral vision, like something looked like somebody's peeking around the corner. And then when I would turn to go look at it, it would shoot back around the door, and you're always like, oh, my eyes must be playing tricks on it. But after, like, that happening so many times, over and over and over, you know, getting that weird feeling like you're being watched, one day I brought it up to my wife, and, and I told her, she was, I said, hey, you may think I'm crazy. 
crazy, but I swear to God, I keep seeing something peeking around the door, and when I look at it, it it turns like it, it shoots it shoots past real quick. Or I'd be sitting there and I would see something shoot past the door, which was even more crazy. So when I told her that, I wasn't expecting her to go. You know, I was I, I just figured she was just gonna go. Oh, that's that's weird. But when I told her that, to my amazement, she was shocked. She was like, oh, my God, I saw the exact same thing. Like, when I'm working out, I'd be on the treadmill running, and I would get a feeling of being watched, and I'd turn, and I would see something shoot past the door or something peeking around the door. So time went on, and there would be times where I was filming the dogs playing, and occasionally we would catch these, like, weird light anomalies, you know, we'd call orbs. That's what it looked like to me. It was just an orb that would be on camera shooting past real quick while the dogs are playing. And then eventually it got even more weird where the dogs, we would be sitting around, you know, in the living room. And then I would catch one of my dogs who was very intuitive. He was good at like, if you had a mosquito bite or a cut, he would know exactly where that is. If I had knee pain, he would come over to my knee and start licking my pain. So I always knew he was intuitive. Uh He was special. But that very same dog, my dog Bear, he would occasionally I'd look over and I would see him staring at something in the room and his eyes would be tracking something like it's flowing around the house. And I kept thinking like I'd go over to him and go, hey, Bubby, you okay, man? You're looking at something? And he wouldn't even break his attention to me. He would just keep, you could see his eyeballs tracking something throughout the house. And sometimes he would hop up and almost go follow it into the bedroom, which kind of creeped me out. I was like, okay, that's weird. That was really our story with the dogs. You know, I, I believe that they, him in particular, the other dog never, never did that. I don't think she was, she was just kind of very much into like, prey, hunting prey, that kind okay, of thing. So gotcha. She was very prey driven. She didn't really care about any kind of stuff like that. Uh-huh. But he, I guarantee, he was seeing something in that house. And with the video evidence to back it up of these orbs that were falling through the house on several occasions that we caught, you know, I believe he was seeing some kind of paranormal activity. That is really cool. I said I have a pug that does something similar, and he is the same way. If you have a cut, he'll find it, and he yep. tries to help you. Uh, but instead, it, well, and he does the same thing. He'll be very wiggly, and then all of a sudden he stops, and he just stares. And that's when you start paying attention, because you know something's up. Yeah, I'd see him stare, and that didn't bother me too much, but... You know, when he would start obviously tracking something moving through the living room, uh-huh. he was seeing something. That, that was very odd for him to do that. And he, he did that on several occasions. And it's nice when we at least have somebody validate what is happening, yeah. even if it's our pets. And like I said, with yeah. the video, to see those orbs, it just, it was, I think that validated what he was seeing. I don't know exactly what he was seeing, but, I mean, this was a fluid head And then all of a sudden he'd pan left slowly. And clearly he was seeing something. What it was? Who knows? Very cool. Only he knows that. Sadly, he's, he's in the spirit world now. But uh, he's greatly missed. He was very special. They always are. Well, thank you for sharing your paranormal pet story. Absolutely. All right. Okay, and with that, I'm going to end this episode by reminding everybody once again to please adopt. I know the winter months are coming up. We had a pandemic. There have been lots of adoptions, but let's keep that up. 
If you'd like to learn more about the Spirits of St. Petersburg, feel free to check out our website at www.spiritsofstpete.com. And I will catch you for the next episode of Werewolves of Winter. Take care. Pet Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Step into the supernatural world of pets every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.